Well, hey, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Happy Easter to all of you. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake. I'm uh, one of the pastors here with Midtown Church, and i uh, just so glad to be able to be celebrating uh, Easter and the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ together with you this morning. And uh, let me just say that uh, if, you're, if you're new here, let me just give you a little bit of context of what, what we do on, on Sunday mornings. Usually we, we sing, we praise God. You got to taste a little bit of that. We're going to do a little bit more of that at the end of the service. We also, during this time of the service, we, we, we take a topic or a book of the Bible and we spend a, a, a few, like a few weeks, kind of set amount of time, and you know, try to flesh out that uh, book of the Bible or some kind of concept. And we call that a sermon series. And today... It's a great Sunday to be here, not just because it's Easter, but I mean, that's, that's really the best reason to be here. But well, it's also a good Sunday to be here because we are uh, starting a brand new series. And the series we're calling Epic, the story that God is telling. That's our, that's our grand title for the series. But Epic, the story that God is telling. And we're going to spend four weeks fleshing out the, the overarching storyline of the Bible. And so I know, I mean, like... I just, you know, I've grown up in the church. I know that many times we just come to church on Easter, and that's okay. That's what you're doing. Like, we're just glad that you're here. But let me just invite you to say that we're going to talk on something for three, for three more weeks after today, and I would encourage you just to plan on sticking around so that you can follow along for the four weeks as we follow the, the overarching story of the Bible, because it's, it's kind of a fascinating story. And I don't know if you know this, but the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. And if you don't actually know what the storyline of the Bible is, well, here's your chance to get a really great Cliff Notes version of that. And then you can be in the know with everybody else who's read it. So anyways, there you go. So this is, we should have fun over the next four weeks. Now, the idea that the Bible actually has an overarching storyline might be kind of news to you. I don't know about you, but like, Oftentimes, I've, I've thought about the Bible more as like a, a you know, compilation of all kinds of, uh, like a, kind of like a guidebook or, or with a lot of rules, how to live, and, and then some, some interesting stories that you can like learn some examples from, and, or uh, some really weird stories that you're like, I don't even know what that means. But that's kind of what I always thought the Bible was full of, and it may, it may be a little bit more like you know, Aesop's fables, where you, you know, lots of just very stories where you're going to get some kind of good moral uh, concept from, and you can like follow their example. But if that's all that the Bible is, then the Bible really would just be about us and what we must do. But that's not what the Bible is at all. And if this is the only thing you hear today, then maybe this will be helpful. So like, maybe you can just tune out. This is new news to you. You can say, okay, I got something out of church, and then I'm going to go to sleep, and we'll wake you up when the music starts again. But here, here's what you need to hear. The, the overarching story of the Bible, what it tells us is that the, the Bible is not about us. It's really about God. It's his story. It's the story that he's telling, and it's about him. And it's, the story is not so much about what we must do for God but it's really about what he has done for us. And in that, this story is incredible good news. Now, just to you know, spill the beans here, the, the, the simple overview of the Bible, you can sum it up in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's, that's the grand like, meta-narrative of the Bible. It's, it's that God created us to have a relationship with him but that we turned our back on him and, and ran away from him and brought destruction to this world through sin. But that God did not abandon us, but he chased after us. He entered the world and he lived and died and rose again for us. 
that we could be brought into a relationship with him and the whole, all of earth could be restored and made new and perfect again for our good and his glory. There it is. That's the story of the Bible. But there's a lot more to be said about that. And so that's what we're going to do. We'll break that up over four weeks. Uh, today, I'm, I'm really excited about what, what we're going to get to uh, look into because we're going to start where every story ought to start. We're going to start at the beginning. But before I get into it, let me just say, just a kind of a quick aside here. At Midtown Church, we, we have made a, a kind of conscientious uh, decision, intentional decision, to teach every week from the Bible. And uh, I don't know how that sits with you, uh, but we, we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and that it's profitable, that it's, it's helpful, that it's relevant to our lives today. Um, Again, I don't know how that sits with you. For some of you in here, I'm sure that you think, well, I don't know if I could ever share that belief with you without having to check my intellect at the door. And if that's how you feel, then I just want you to know that that's like, I get that. And what I would like you to do is instead of just like saying, well, then I'm either not going to believe it or I'm going to check my intellect at the door and just act like I can believe it, even though I really don't. What I'd rather you do is, and what I want to invite you to do is to ask questions, it's to explore this and to study whether the Bible really is what it claims to be. And if you haven't really spent a lot of time studying that, then maybe today this could be a little bit of a catalyst in your life to say, like, let me see if there is good reason to believe this. Because I just want you to know, I've asked those questions. And the, and the leaders of this church, we've asked those questions. And, and we didn't just, like, blind faith believe that the Bible is God's word because, you know, we, our parents told us so or whatever. But because we, we really did investigate it, and we found after studying it, that there's great reason to believe that it actually is what it says it is. In fact, we've provided an article uh, for you. If you're interested in studying this, we've provided an article for you on the table out in the, in the hallway area that you can pick up at the end of the service today. It's got an academic article on whether we can, like, is there any good reason to believe that the Bible is trustworthy and reliable? So anyways, just a quick aside there. I want to invite you to study that. I want you to lean into your questions, but lean into them by searching out answers. But other than that, but having said that, we do believe that it's God's word. And we believe that it is really helpful because this Bible, the Bible is the grand story. It's the big story that explains all of our stories. It's, it's the story that encompasses our stories and gives our stories both meaning and direction and purpose and, a, and gives us a sense of orientation. You probably have thought of that, about this before, but like, it, isn't life like a story? Doesn't it come at us like a story? You know, like each day has a beginning and end and it unfolds in a way that you don't know what's going to happen next. And every day and our lives are filled with different characters and different settings. And sometimes life feels like a, uh, a comedy. And sometimes it feels like a drama or a tragedy. Uh, oftentimes it feels a bit of a, like a mixture of both or just like a really long soap opera. And so like, but we're just left trying to figure out like, you know, what, what kind of story are we in? But it, it feels like a story, doesn't it? And what's interesting too, is that even though it's our story, sometimes if, I'll just speak personally, but if you're like me, it feels like even though this is my story, I feel lost in it. And sometimes I even feel like I, I, I've like shown up to a movie 30 minutes late. And I know that something in my life, like the story that's happening in my life, I know that it has meaning, or at least I really want to hope that it has a lot of meaning. 
But I'm not real sure how to make sense of it. Now, there's, there's good things that happen. And sometimes they're really beautiful things that happen. You know, meet someone, you fall in love, or you, you find that thing that you love to do. And as you do it, you like your passion, you come alive doing it. And then somehow you make a way to get paid for doing that. Like, these are beautiful things in life. It's like, this is good stuff. And then also awful things happen. And that person that you fall in love with falls out of love with you. Or that thing that used to give you life now just feels like drudgery. And it's life-taking. And you think, well, what's going on? Life, life is, is beautiful on one hand and, and, and horrible on the other, and oftentimes just a mixture of both, and we just feel lost. I just feel lost, and I just wish that there was something that could make sense of it all, of my story. When I said, that's the claim that Christianity has on the Bible, that the Bible, the story of God, actually makes sense of all of our stories. I love what... Uh, the author John Eldridge says in his book, Epic, and we've kind of stolen the name of his book for this series, and we're borrowing some from his book, and we're giving his book away to you today. If you want, uh, pick that up for you. But uh, in that book, one of the things that he says, and I really enjoy this uh, quote, he says that life often feels like we're holding in our hands some pages torn out of a book. These pages are the days of our lives, fragments of a story. They seem important, or at least we long to know they are. But what does it mean? If we only could find the book that contains the rest of the story. And a picture of just holding these, these loose papers and thinking, well, how does this all fit together? If we can only find the book that tells the rest of the story. Well, guys, that's the claim that Christianity and that even the Bible has for itself, that it is the book that holds all of our other story, all of our individual stories together and helps make sense of them. In addition to that, the Bible also claims that there's an author to this story. I like what G.K. Chesterton says. He says, you know, I'd always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, then there is a storyteller. And the Bible's claim is that there is an author and that he is good and that he's the source of all that's good and kind and loving and righteous. And that we find, our, we find our being and our meaning in him. That he, there is an author to this story. And guys, if this is true, you might not be following me and saying, like nodding along, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. But let's just say for a second, if this is true, then wouldn't that be helpful? Like, wouldn't that be helpful if there really was a book that we can go to that would explain our lives and give us a sense of meaning? And if we know who the author is of the story that's being written and we can know something about him, then we would know who we came from. And if we could also know not only who we came from, but what we're here for, we can know the role that we have to play in this story. Wouldn't that be helpful? Wouldn't that be nice? Certainly it would. Well, I want you to track along with me, and again, it's my invitation to you, four weeks, just to, just to invis- investigate. Is this perhaps the book? Is this perhaps the story that makes sense of all of our stories? Uh, let's begin and just dive into this at the beginning. And at the beginning of this story, this epic, we find the answer to two huge questions that if, if they are the right answers really do orient us in our lives. The first is who we came from. 
And the second is what we're here for. And so if you will, if you've you've got a a Bible with you or on your phone or iPad or other electronic device, or you have eyes and you could just look up here, we'll put the verses up here as well. And, um, but we're going to, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter one, verse one. And now Genesis is the first book of the Bible, literally means, Genesis literally means beginnings or origins. And uh, in it, in these very first sentences in the Bible, we get a, a glimpse into who is authoring our story. If you look carefully at the very first sentences, you'll see something incredibly important that was happening before the beginning of the world. And oftentimes when we read Genesis, we think that it's just the account of how the world begins. But in the very beginning, you get a sense of what happened even before the beginning of the world. Let me, let me, uh, let me read it for us, and then I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, let me just stop there, those, those few sentences. Is that in the beginning, there was God. And that's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. Which means that before the creation of the world, there was God, that there was a God that existed. And, I, and this is the claim of Christianity that that. Uh, God is the only eternal being that has always existed before, in, and therefore existing before creation. And that in him, uh, everything else finds its source and finds its beginnings. And so, in the beginning, there's God. And if that's true, and all of us find our source in him, then it seems important for us to know who he is and what, what he's like, right? Well, that's what a little bit of what we get a picture of in this in these uh, first few verses of the Bible. Let me, let me point them out to you. In verse 1, we see that in the beginning, uh, there was God. And then in verse 2, that we're told that the Spirit of God was actually hovering over the face of the waters, which is kind of this, like, okay, what in the world does that mean? And like, did the waters, were the waters even created already? Like, I don't, I don't even know what that means, and I'm not going to even try to explain it to you, except to say that you have this seemingly other person present. You've got, you've got God, and then something else that's referred to as God, the Spirit of God. And, and you have this phrase that he's hovering over the waters. And this word that's used for hovering is really an interesting word. It's the same word that was used to describe a, 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 uh, a mother bird hovering over her, uh, her, uh, her nest, a mother over her young. It's like a very intimate image. And so you have God and the Spirit of God mentioned here in the creation account. And then what we see is God creating through the Word. Now, this is going to get a little bit weird, and it's going to feel like I'm just like making stuff up. <laughs> but let me just draw out something that I find very interesting. It says that God says, let there be light, and there is light, which is different than just God creating light. He speaks light into existence. The light comes through the Word of God. Now, the whole reason, and you say, okay, that's sure, what's the point? Well, in the New Testament, later on in the Bible, we get this explanation of why that's significant, and it really is phenomenal. In John chapter 1, we're told this. I'm just, I think I've got it up here. John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This, this part of the Bible draws out why it's even worth mentioning that God created through his word instead of just creating. Here we're told that the word is actually the second person in the Trinity. It's God the Son, Jesus the Christ, who comes to earth in flesh. And the whole point of all of this is to say something, is to like draw our attention to something really amazing about who the Bible says the author of our story really is. And that is that there's a God that's writing this story, but he's not a unipersonal God. He's not, he's not a, a, a lonely but powerful God who brings creation into existence in order that he would have someone or something to love. But was before creation had nothing to love because it was just him. That in Christianity, what we find is, is that God is a, a trinity, it's one God and three persons, which is like doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't. Like I can't explain that to you, other than that's the claim of Christianity that that there is one God, three persons. It's it's no God is no more uh, uh, just one God than He is three persons, or more three persons than He is one God. He's perfect one God, three persons, and yet what that tells us about God, as we see even before creation, that there is God the Father, there is a Spirit of God hovering over the deep, and then there's the Word of God, God the Son, all present in creation, together bringing everything about. And what that means is that before there was creation, there was relationship, and there was love. And that's interesting. I think that's worth noting about like, okay, what is this story that we're a part of and who's writing this story? Well, if this story comes from a unipersonal God that doesn't have love, just has power, and then love follows on the periphery after he creates, then that says something about the type of story we're in. The the sensual quality that brought the story about is power. And that could then determine our values of what we prioritize in life accomplishments and achievements and career advancement and all that stuff. Power, we should strive for power because power is the fundamental essence of all of life. But the claim of Christianity, the claim of the Bible is that God is not a unipersonal God. He's a, he's a trinity, one God, three persons. And therefore, before the power of creation was, was uh, you know, executed, you first had love within the trinity the, the, the creation came and flowed out of this loving relationship that existed within God. And so before power came love, and if, that means that love is the essence of all that there is. That love is what brought that about. That before anything, there was love, and therefore that should tell us something about the primacy of relationships that should tell us that we are to, uh, to live and enjoy, live for and enjoy relationships. That the relationships are key. That relationships are where, is, is what brought us about because it's, it's, it's who God is first and foremost. And not just any relationships, though all relationships are important, but one relationship key above all else, the relationship between us and God since we float, since we flowed out of 
the joy that was going on within the Trinity. It's, it's an interesting thought, is it not? The um, couple things just to, to flesh this out. First, it means that we weren't created. This, this can tell us that we, we weren't created because God was lonely, but because he was loving. We weren't created because God is lonely, but because God is loving. Uh, in John chapter 17, we get this really uh, amazing uh, picture into how God interacts within himself uh, when, when Jesus is praying then on the night that he was going to be betrayed. And in it, he prays in John 17, verse 4 and 5, he says, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And here we get this picture of how from eternity past, before the creation of the world, the Father and the Son were glorifying one another. To glorify each other means to praise and to honor and to love. So Jesus is saying before the beginning there was, before the beginning, there was love inside of God. And through this, we can get the picture of what the Bible even means when it says that God is love. Which is one of our favorite statements, isn't it? But how is God love if he had to first create in order to be loved before creation then? Was he not just lonely? He couldn't possibly be love before if it's a unipersonal God, but if God is Trinity. And he has always existed in relationship. A relationship where they glorify one another, where they give of one another, where they circle one another, they orbit around one another, where they magnify and glorify one another. Then yes, it makes perfect sense to say that God is love and has been for all of eternity and will be for eternity future. That's where we come from. And that at least brings some insight to what the nature of this story is. It seems to be if we were born out of a love in God, perhaps we find ourselves in a love story. And that would be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be encouraging, at least. Okay, the other thing that this, can, this means, just before I move on, if this is who God is and he's the author of our story, then what this means is that we are created to enjoy and engage in self-giving relationships. And we were created to enjoy and engage in self-giving relationships. Follow me here. For if all creation finds its source in a triune God, then that informs us about how relationships are designed to work. See, this implication of this idea, it really informs us on how we are to relate to one another. Not just that the relationships are, are of great importance, but also gives us insight into how those relationships are supposed to work. Because within the Godhead, you have the self-giving nature, the self-orientation of God, where you see Jesus talking about, Father, glorify me as I've glorified you before the creation of the world. It's not, hey, it's not live for me, live for me. It's I'm living for you, you're living for me, I'm living for you, I'm living, you're living for me. It's, it's this mutual self-giving aspect that exists within the Trinity, if that's the relationship in which we all come from, then it says something about the very nature of relationships and how they are designed to work, at, work best. And here's what this means practically, guys, is that relationships are not designed to work when we try to make the people in, that we're in a relationship with live for you instead of you living for them. That if the ultimate relationship is seen in the Trinity where each person in the Godhead is orbiting around the other, glorifying the other, 
then that informs us that that's how relationships really are designed to work. We live for the other. We give of ourselves. We love. We serve the other. And in a perfect relationship, they in turn do the same. And they give and you give. And they give and you give. And when you have this mutual self-giving within a relationship, that's where you find a sense of paradise, is it not? I mean, there's nothing better than that. Well, because that's what God has experienced for all eternity. And so we can know that God is profoundly happy, (laughs) profoundly happy, profoundly satisfied. It's like this, like when I met Krista, my wife, I just had to talk to her. I mean, I was just drawn in by her. And so I had to talk to her. When I began to talk to her, I I quickly found that, that I just adored her and that I would be willing to do anything for her. One night we were hanging out before we were dating. I just, with any chance I could get, I would try to hang out with her. And uh, she, her roommate got sick, and they needed a, a thermometer, and they didn't have one. And so I'm quick, like, I'm just quick, like, I'll go. I'll go get a thermometer. I'll do whatever I need. I'll, whatever you want. Whatever you want. I'll get that. Do you want me to pick up any, like, coffee or chocolates or, or roses or what, what, whatever you want? You want whatever. And so I, I left. And, like, it's, I mean, it's stupid little mundane stuff like that. But I was happy to do it because I adored her. But imagine my joy when I found out that she felt the same way about me and that she adored me. Sorry. There we go. I'm good. There we go. Uh, I should do that for a little uh, extra traumatic. The, um, but whatever, whatever it, uh, it took to be together, it was, it was sublime. It was perfect. When you find someone that you really love, then, and they really love you, then it, it's so satisfying. Well, guys, that's what we have in God, and that's what we're invited into with God. And that is how relationships are designed to work. A self-giving, not self-centered relationship. It's why when we try to make our relationships all about us, they fall apart. This explains it. This part of the story explains why relationships dissolve when you're in the relationship or saying, live for me, live for me, my way, it's my way, orbit around me. They, they don't last. Why? Because that's not how relationships were designed. We find the design relationship within the Trinity of God. And it's insightful about our story, is it not? Well, the other thing, so, that, so that's where we came from. Let's go to the second question. Found also in the beginning of this story. Just later on in the very first chapter of Genesis, we find the answer to another amazing, huge question of, 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 that can orient us in our life story. And that is, what in the world am I here for? What is my purpose? Well, we, we see that spoken to when God created man. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's so funny. Creeps. All right. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what we see in this, these verses is we get this image of the triune God. Notice the plural that's used here. Let us, let us make man in, in our own image. 
And the idea of that being that we're made in the image, and the idea is that God has made us to reflect and to represent him. This idea of the image of God is a rich concept that, you, that really uh, is, is spoken to throughout the entire story of God, throughout the entire Bible. And it has profound implications on what our purpose is and how we are to live practically. Let me just start off with, like, what does this mean? Well, if we're made in the image of God, what that means, like I said, is, is that we are to represent and to reflect God, that he, he created us. As mankind, like he says, the purpose that I've brought you in this world is so that you will give my physical creation a physical picture of my character. See, we're not made in the image of God in the sense that we look like God physically, but we're made in the image of God and that we are to represent him in his character. That as God is loving, we are to be loving. That as God is generous, we are to be generous. As God's creative, we should be creative. As God is kind, we should be kind. As God's honest, on and on and on. That how we live is to reflect how, who God is and what he's like. That is our grand purpose. Now, all of us will have specific purposes of how we do that in our lives. But all of us generally have this, according to the Bible, purpose. What are we here for? We're here to represent and to reflect God, like in a mirror, where we take, we face God so that we reflect him, but then that anyone who passes by can get a picture of what he's like. If I was to uh, paint a portrait of you, it would look nothing like you. I <laughs> can't paint at all. But let's say I was actually a good painter, and I was to paint a portrait of you. And if it was an accurate representation of you, then for as long as the portrait existed, people can come to the portrait and get a picture of what you look like. And that God created us for that purpose, that all of creation can get a picture of what he is like. We are made in the image of God. So that's what that means. But here are some implications of this. And, and there are a tons. I mean, I could spend a, a lot longer than you want to listen to me talking about this. But let me just give you two. And the first is this. That because we're made in the image of God, we know, we can know with absolute certainty that we have great value. That you have great value. And so does every, every other living person. Because we are all made in the image of God. We're all image bearers of the God of the universe. And so that means that we have dignity, that we have worth, that we have value. I, I like how Tim Keller says it. He says it this way. Um, this is the basis, the image of God is the basis for ascribing a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory and significance, value and worth to every single human being, everyone. And it's based on this that we should, we should not only have a sense of self, uh, of worth in how God has created us, but also that we should treat others with great respect and dignity and with value. Martin Luther King Jr. had this as his foundational argument for the civil rights movement. In his speech entitled The American Dream, he says, the concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. And this gives every human being a uniqueness, a worth, and it gives dignity, and we must not ever forget this as a nation, 
There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Christianity, because of the doctrine of the image of God, can say to people, can say to you, then grounded in ultimate reality, in the God who made us for the purpose that he made us, you are valuable and you have great worth. You have rights that should never be trampled on and you have value that can never be denied and so does everybody else. And that has profound implication on how we live. Second thing that we could flesh out, and just, just for the sake of time, just mention two of these. But another thing that comes out of this idea that we are made in the image of God is that we have great purpose. That we have a great purpose. In his book, After Virtue, the philosopher uh, Aladair McIntyre argues that you can never determine whether something is good or bad unless you know its purpose. And so he asks, For example, how can you tell whether a watch is a good one or a bad one? You have to know what its purpose is. If you try to hammer a nail in with your watch and it breaks, should you complain that you have a bad watch? Of course not. It wasn't made to hammer in nails. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to tell you the time at a glance. The same principle should apply and does apply to humanity. How can you say that someone is a good person or a bad person unless you know what they are designed for? what their purpose is. And what if you were to say, well, I don't actually know if there is a God. And I don't think that anyone, that any, any of us have a real purpose. I think we're just accidents. And, and there's no, no purpose to life. Well, if that's, if that's what you believe, then I just simply wanted to point out that it's really hard to live with that viewpoint with, with integrity. And, and perhaps you, you can do it better than I could. But what that would mean is that you would say that no one has a purpose, and therefore we can never know whether one is good or bad. And so to, to ever think or to say, hey, to someone, hey, you're not living right, or what that person did was wrong, would be inconsistent with your worldview. See, we can't know if something is good or bad unless we know what his purpose is. But if you believe that there is a God and he created us for a purpose, then you have the basis by which you can determine if you're good or not. Because it depends on whether or not you are fulfilling your purpose. And here the author of the story says that he created us for a grand purpose to image him, to reflect his character, to show the world what he is like. But if we sit under that thought for too long, then we're going to be crushed, aren't we? If you just take the moment to reflect and think, okay, if this is what I was designed for and I can know my purpose based on whether I give an accurate and consistent picture of what God is like, then I'm not a good person. And I'm not fulfilling my purpose. And that's kind of a crushing thought, isn't it? I know it is for me. The Bible puts it this way. It says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. 
that we've all fallen short of giving the world an accurate picture of what God is like. That we don't glorify him, that we don't represent him as he should be represented. And in doing so, we distort the image of God. We slander the name of God. We misconstrue who God is and what he's like. And that is a gigantic offense, especially in light of that it is our very purpose that we're failing to execute on. See, we, we fall short because we find ourselves in the story where we're invited up into a self-giving, completely loving relationship with God. And yet, if we're honest, on most days, we spend more time rejecting him or ignoring him than even talking to him, much less giving our, our lives to God as he gives his life for us. That we fall short because the essence of a great relationship is, is giving of self and deferring self. But most of the time, I and perhaps you, like me, are way more concerned trying to get people to live for me than I am about living for them. I fall short and we fall short as we realize, that we, uh, as we realize and learn that we're made in the image of God and therefore we are all valuable. And yet, as the book of James says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That we fall short when we realize that even though I, that, that's such good news that I made it in the image of God, it's such bad news about how I, sh- like, it's, such, it's so alarming that everyone else is made in the image of God when you think about how you treat everyone else, or how I treat everyone else, how I talk bad about people, how I think bad about people, how I ignore people and neglect people, that people I should respect that have incredible dignity because they are image bearers of God. And when I think about that, I think, what have I done? I fall short in how I treat other people. We fall short because we have been given a purpose by God to display his character to this creation. And yet, look at us. I mean, if we're honest, we don't love as God loves. We don't give as God gives. We don't treat people like God says to treat people and does treat people. We fall short And in light of this, we have to pause. We have to think, okay, I thought we were in some kind of great love story, but this feels like a tragedy, does it not? Because if this is what we were made for, and yet this is what is happening, then then this is not good. And it can explain so much of the world that we look around and see broken and hurting and painful and so much suffering. And we think, "This, this is not a love story. This is... This is a love story gone wrong. This is a, this is a tragedy. But it's helpful at this moment to remember that it's, that it's Easter. It's Easter. This is the day that we set aside among all the other days to really celebrate the fact that God did not abandon us when we fell short of our purpose, but instead he pursued us. He came after us, and he died for us, and he defeated sin, and then he defeated death, and he rose again. That today is the day 
when it's affirmed once and for all that this truly is, the story that we find ourselves in truly is a love story, a love story of all love stories, the greatest of love stories. When the pursuer is willing to do whatever it takes to bring us back to him. And this is where it's helpful to remember that God did not create us because he needed us, but that we were created out of the overflow of the love that already existed, that he wanted us to experience and be ushered into that life-giving love that's found in him. And so when we abandon him, he was not left angry and, and lonely, that he still had all the love that he ever needed. And in that love, he decided to pursue us, not to abandon us. He, he decided to come after us. That the God of the universe took on flesh. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 says this, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Guys, this is the most amazing thing ever. See, because God created us to bear his image, but we failed. And so God instead bore our image. Not our character, but our physical image. That God took on flesh. That he came as a servant. He was found in the likeness of man. That he would live the life that we have all failed to live. The life that actually fulfilled the purpose of why God created us. To show the world what God is really like in the flesh. Jesus lived the life that we have all failed to live. But then he wasn't exalted at the end of that life. Instead, he was hung on a cross. Crucified by the very people that he came to save. And there on the cross, God died. Verse 8 of Philippians 2 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And there God died for all of our shortcomings. God died for every time you decided you had something better to do than to talk to him or pursue him. God died for every relationship you made that you made about you. God died for every person, every image bearer that you have mistreated, ignored, and hurt. God died for every time you have failed to reflect his character. He died so that you don't have to. He died so that you could have your sins forgiven, your shortcomings healed, and restored into a relationship with him. Why did he do this? The book of Hebrews tells us that he did it for the joy that was set before him. That's why Jesus enjoyed the cross. Because our God is a loving God. And this is a great love story that we find ourselves in. And so for the joy set before him, he went to the cross that we could be brought into the heart of God. The most self-giving act of all time. God himself emptying himself of his very rights to deity. Taking on flesh in order for us to be able to be united with God. Praise God for the cross and the resurrection. For through it, our sins can be forgiven and we can be brought near to God. 
That's the greatest news of all time. And that tells us something about this story we're in, does it not? And perhaps it's a good story. And perhaps the author is a good author. And perhaps we have a very important role to play in this story. I want to uh, wrap up our time by just extending an invitation to you. And that is that if you're hearing this and you're thinking, man, I hope that that's true. Even if, you've, if, if perhaps a time you've never really believed it and you've had good reasons probably not to. But if you hear it and you think, man, I hope that's true, I want to invite you to believe it right now. And I just want you to know that it's okay that you have questions and that you have doubts and you need to ask those questions. You do. I want you to. I want, we invite that here. But you don't have to wait to have all your questions answered in order to believe this. You just don't. That's not how any relationship works. You don't ever get into a relationship once you have all your questions answered about a person. You enter a relationship, and then within the relationship, that's where you get your answers. That's the best place to get your questions answered. It's within a relationship. It's not holding God at an arm's distance. It's, it's, it's walking into the open arms of God because of what Christ did for you on the cross, and there you find answers. And so what I want to ask you to do, and I just want to invite you to do it, is just to say, God, like I want this to be true, and so I, I believe it's true. I believe that you loved me so much that you died for me. And that in your death, my sins are forgiven. And in your resurrection, I can find new life. And I can, by the power of God, live out the purpose by which you created me to reflect your image because God would live within you. And I want you to, be- I want you to believe that. I want to give you a chance to do that right now. And so if you will, if you're willing, bow your, bow your, your, your heads, close your eyes, and just... In, your, in the quietness of your heart, repeat after me if you want to believe this, if you're ready to believe this. Let me pray. Father, thank you for dying for me. Now, I've messed up, and I've fallen short, and I admit I need forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me. I believe. I believe that you rose again, Jesus, and that because of that, I can have new life. May I live in response to how you died for me, how you gave your life for me. Now I, in return, give you my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you guys feel compelled to stand in response to this amazing message of of our purpose, why we were created, uh, and what we're to live for, um, and then in the midst of Easter and, and the